0: Hey friend, welcome to Aspirations, the General Giant fan podcast. Hey friend, welcome to the podcast. This is episode 6. Back in September 21st, 1975, a young 29-year-old would go to the New Victoria Theatre in London and see Gentle Giant play. And that night would change his life and change the course of the history of the band. And I got a chance to talk to him. Now, as of right now, a little bit after midnight, August 18th, The Gentle Giant fans that are waiting for this podcast to to go up, they don't know who my guest is. And later on, I'll put his name on the episode, but right now, they don't know who the guest is. And it was a matter of, I wasn't quite sure whether I could make it happen. And so I said, I can't really say right now who it is. And then it became a matter of, you know, well, keeping people in suspense. It was kind of fun. And it took a little bit of work getting the show edited. Because once again, I had some technical problems. I believe it was the overseas connection. And um, gosh, he had to switch phones twice. And a battery went dead on one of them. But through it all, he was really patient and committed to doing the interview. And then the whole time I was out of breath and worried that I was going to miss out on this opportunity. So... But I loved talking to him. And um, so I guess without further ado, here was our conversation. Well, I can't tell you how happy I am to talk to you. Um, the The people that will listen to this later, um, they uh-huh. don't know. They don't know who my guest was going to be. I, I when, when you sent me an email back. I I had posted on Facebook, I said, Well, I just got goosebumps because I got a response from a guest and I'm so excited about it, but but I'm not gonna say who it is yet. Blimey. But all, all of them would be would be familiar if I told them five words. And that mm. was Where shall we begin then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where shall we begin then? I, I know you remember that well. Uh.
1: Yes, well, I just played it again this afternoon, so I do remember it. <laughs> I don't know if I would have otherwise. I, it was a long I, time ago. Oh, my word, what was it? Uh, how many? Yep, yeah, we're talking uh, forty-five I, years, are we?
0: Nineteen seventy-six. Yep, yeah. yeah. It, was in, it, was, it was in February and in yeah. March, but I wasn't—I wasn't aware of the whole story of that. Um, and we'll get into that in a minute, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't believe somebody hasn't written a book about your life and your experiences. What? with Sounds magazine, and oh, all it's... the people that you have interviewed. Yeah. There isn't there isn't a lot of information about you on no, the internet. Well,
1: that's fine with me. Not that I'm secretive or anything. I'll tell you anything you like. You know, no. um, <laughs> hat size or whatever. Uh, but uh, it's that uh, I'm a. Uh, I'm a person who nothing ever happens to. Uh, I go and interview people and um, uh, it goes nicely usually. And uh, I have a good time. They they do all right. And uh, that's it. I don't make friends with rock stars. almost never. And, uh, you know, I think my writing style is quite uh, plain, Uh, although it's changed over years and it was probably less plain when I was writing for Sounds. But uh, so, uh, you know, I, don't, I never became a legend of the rock world. I'm just a, a steady performer, or I was a steady performer <laughs> before I retired. Well, and,
0: I wouldn't, uh, so I, I, wouldn't I wouldn't. say that you weren't a legend if you went on uh, a website about the police. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. You're somewhat legend with them because there was a drummer named Stuart, and I don't know the whole story. I'd love to hear a little bit about it. But you you introduced him, uh, you took him to a, yeah. a gig for Last Exit, and there was um, a bass player that uh, his name was Gordon. And yeah. um, you said something to the effect of, hey, here's, here's Gordon. What do you think about him? Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that is my claim to fame, I think, um, is that I introduced uh, Stuart Copeland and Sting. He was already known as Sting. Uh, mm-hmm. By then, so I would have said, Stuart, this is Sting, <laughs> or something to that effect. And last exit, we playing in this uh, university bar at this small college. It wasn't even uh, Newcastle University, excuse me, it wasn't even Newcastle University. It was a small uh, college of education a couple of miles out of the center of Newcastle. And uh, I'd just been to see Curved Air, uh, which no doubt you know was uh, Stuart's mm-hmm. previous band. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was quite friendly with Curved Air, uh, Sonia and Stuart. And uh, I was also friendly with Sting because he was a local guy. And I was Sound's man in the Northeast at the time, you know. So uh, I was boosting local bands like you do. And uh, Sting was the big star I discovered. I can't lay claim to discovering any other big stars. A few people who made albums, but Sting was the big one. And so that was it. You know, one of those uh, completely unconscious, you might say, magic moments where you say, Stuart, Sting, Sting, Stuart. And they get chatting a bit. And not over much on the night, I know, but uh, Stuart watched him play. And what he was impressed with was... His stage presence and his look, and although Sting was playing uh, jazz rock basically, uh, all sorts, but jazz rock, um, he just saw him as a potential frontman, and of course the music that uh, Stewart was aiming to play in emulation of punk—not couldn't say they were really punk—but in emulation of punk was uh, was fairly dreadful. Um, and Sting thought so, and in due course Andy Summers thought so, but they managed to evolve into the thing that uh, pivoted around Roxanne, you know, so, because Sting was writing real songs. Um, if um, partly if you slowed down what the initial piece, police were playing, anyway. So, so we I, we introduced them. I introduced them, and uh, and then later Stuart rang. Um, our flat, me and my wife, uh, who wasn't my wife then, but uh, we were living together back then, and uh, and said, have you got a phone number for Sting? And so we gave Stuart the phone number, and so it went. And uh, so hmm. that, how I started the police. And wow. I don't get a penny royalty, isn't that shocking?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, they did they they you were of such notoriety that you did um get to go on their 2007 tour, is that correct? Yeah, and then yeah. write a write a uh, a send-up of it about 10,000 words in Mojo magazine. Am I correct?
1: I did write a big piece for Mojo magazine. Uh, yes, I wouldn't say it was a send-up, but I did write a piece for Mojo magazine. And uh, yeah, yeah, I went on the road. I think uh, I think that was the one where I saw them in Vancouver. Anyway, same old uh, um, three brilliantly articulate blokes, you know, they always were mm. great interviewees. And uh, they remained great interviewees, all three of them, um, as per in the past, mostly talked to them uh, separately. Mm. Uh, we did have one great radio interview, actually, uh, with all three of them in in the room. That was for Radio One here, BBC Radio oh, wow.
0: One, back in now, 81 this- or something. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The The town Newcastle that you that, mm. the, the, the jazz club was in, is that the same town that you work for the Newcastle Engl- uh, Evening Chronicle as an apprentice?
1: That's right. Yes, I was an apprentice journalist on the Evening Chronicle uh, 1970 to 1972 or three, possibly. Uh, yeah, that was it where I learned my trade.
0: <laughs> well, how many years did that take um, to, to go through the apprenticeship?
1: Well, um, they had a thing back then that was called a graduate apprenticeship. So I I went there from Manchester University, having got my degree in English and American literature, with emphasis on the American. I was always a big fan of American literature, which obviously carried over into the music as well, you know. And, Mm -hmm. uh, And so I was able to do my apprenticeship in two years apprenticeships are very very hard to come by now but mm-hmm. back then it was a brilliant uh, way of getting into all the basic skills of journalism you know of course it was a very general journalism course it wasn't about music journalism at all but it gave you all the tools you wanted it was huh. great
0: so it, it sounds like and again there's very little information out there hmm. but it sounds like you you became enamored with music but there was a was there a rolling stones event in Wellwyn in 1963 that you you referred to that in a Sounds Magazine article um, yeah. <laughs> and w- w- how did that uh, if I'm correct how did that change uh, your direction that that concert?
1: Well um, I was late to live concerts maybe most of us were back then I rather suspect that was the case uh, the radio was the thing, you know, and you rarely got the chance to see a band. Most of my mates, I lived on the outskirts of London, uh, officially in London by postcode, code, but on the north of London, you know. Yeah. And uh, most of my mates didn't go to live gigs, so it wasn't a normal thing. As it became later, uh, we all listened to the radio. We all talked about music all the time, and of course. Uh, the whole thing lit up with the Beatles. I was mm-hmm. too young for Elvis, really. Bruce Springsteen wasn't too young for Elvis, and he's younger than me, but I was too young for Elvis. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and uh, so it was what really lit us up was the whole Mersey Beat thing, uh, starting late 62 and moving on through, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So then what happened was um, the first gig that cropped up that my mates actually did want to go to and, I, and asked me if I wanted to go. so yeah, sure. although it, it was I had to go on the train quite a long trip uh, north of London to Welling Garden City and to this place called the Locarno which was a chain of dance halls, old-fashioned dance halls, but they were mm-hmm. uh, of course uh, new bands were going into these dance halls by then, you know, uh, whatever made money, of course, whatever you could fill the place with. And the Rolling Stones played. And man, were they. I, I liked their records already, although it was. I hadn't even started writing their own songs by then, you know. They were at the mm-hmm. stage of uh, Not Fade Away. So that was a Buddy Holly cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, so, whatever month uh, Not Fade Away came out, that's when it was. And uh, they were uh, just seeing a live band, that live. Imagine your first real live band apart from a school gig wow. was the Rolling Stones, <laughs> as young men. And, oh. uh, man, I remember Jaggers uh, dancing, you know, the, the legs, the man, the legs, what were things they could do, fantastic. Oh. And uh, the whole five of them jammed together, although it was a dance, it was still a relatively small stage, you know, but loads of action and, oh, The joint was indeed jumping, you know. So that set me off and I wrote about that. There you are, this is the twist, of course. I wrote about that gig for the school magazine. God knows why the editor of the school magazine, who was a teacher, I might say, there was no democracy about these things back then. But this teacher said, okay, write about the Rolling Stones if you want to. So that's what I did. And that's what I was nostalgic about um, in, uh, was it in Mojo or Q, one of the magazines now anyway. Um, and uh, recalling that gig that I wrote about for for the school magazine, you know, which was just, uh, well, it'd be one of the very best gigs I ever saw. Still, you know, I never saw hmm. the stones better. I never saw the stones being very good again. That's my bad luck because, of course, hmm. they. But, uh, but there it was. Wow. Uh, great night for a young chap. <laughs> I 16, guess. 15 or 16, depending. what. Wow. Where it fell in relation to my birthday.
0: Well, when you were apprenticing there at the Evening Evening Chronicle,
1: mm. did
0: you see yourself with a, like a straight laced, just reporting the news career ahead of you, or, or did you have ideas of, of reporting about music? I mean,
1: no, I was I was straight laced. I remain straight laced, and that's the career I saw myself doing was uh, uh, that kind of journalism, you know. And uh, and uh, that's what I was preparing myself to do, and what I did for um, some years, you know, four or five years, and I kind of always returned to it a bit because I could always, I could always do it. I'd had all the mm-hmm. education and the uh, training that you could wish for, you know. So it was within my compass to do anything on the news front. But what happened was um, the transition into music journalism occurred because. Number one, I was a fan. I just hadn't thought, oh, you can make your living doing this. You know, that hadn't crossed my mind. Uh, And I don't think many people did make their living back then, although there was the weekly music papers. But uh, I never uh, thought of working for them. You know, I didn't read them much, um, but I did a bit. But as I say, the radio was the thing. Radio, and then I started buying records. But uh, never had a record player in my home, you know, because... Frankly, we didn't have a lot of money, and so that was a luxury, wasn't it? But the radio was there, so who needed records when you've got the radio pouring this stuff out at you all the time? You know, it's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, so eventually, when I I reached about twenty-one, I got a record player and started buying records, vinyl, of course, back then, and uh, and then opportunity. necessity and opportunity coincided what happened was i couldn't get a new job i couldn't get my second job it was that thing you know which Mm -hmm. can happen in any career you start in a job you start looking around thinking what shall i do next so you start applying for jobs answer nobody wants you nobody wanted me i always say this to folks when i'm encouraging other journos to keep plugging away chaps you know mm-hmm. it's uh i think i applied for 175 jobs and got rejected for all of them over wow. the course of two years so i was applying at about you know two to three a week and just getting rejected 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 so i did the thing that i would kind of had in mind because i always liked the idea of being a freelance mm-hmm. and so perforce i did what i sort of wanted to do i went freelance i took the gamble Left my job uh, with the Evening Chronicle, my steady job, which had a you know, potential career path ahead of me, and, uh, and started freelancing. Well, I was willing to do anything, but of course, as a freelance you, you pretty much immediately think, oh, now how the hell do I get work apart from the Evening Chronicle might give mm-hmm. me the low-paid story. And so it's like, oh, yeah, well, what do I, what do I like? What am I interested in? Uh, all sorts of things.
0: Do you remember where we where we left off?
1: <laughs> where were we at?
0: Yeah. I was
1: talking about God. Oh yeah, going freelance, wasn't it? That was it. Uh, okay. Yeah. So going freelance, and uh, it was a matter of looking around for subjects that I was interested in. So obviously, uh, pop and rock were was one of those subjects. And then looking around for clients. That which that's what you do as a freelance. Now I had one. It's a disadvantage in UK to be out of London in some respects, you know, but the advantage was I'm not in London. <laughs> and so you use the advantages of where you are is you know, like a freelance lesson. I'm sure your readers don't need to know this, but it sure. is. And uh, so it was like I contacted all those national weekly newspa- music papers that we had back then. Uh, that was the UK scene. And uh, said, Would you like someone in Newcastle? And Sounds was the one who took me up. So I had Thanks. several years. Oh, yeah, several years. Well, how was it about? Oh, six years. Oh, so six or seven years working for Sounds, mm-hmm. mostly from New Sorry, are you still there? Yes. Oh, good. I made a slight noise, which I thought was the disconnection noise again. There you go. Yes, I had about six years uh, working from Newcastle mostly, except I was in London for one year. And my movements between Newcastle and London strongly related to um, Gailey, uh, as we became uh, more than good friends and so on. And then we ended up back in London in 79. And I worked for loads of other music music magazines and papers and um, Radio 1 and Radio 4, which are BBC stations, um through the 80s and 90s and noughties even you know Mm -hmm. so it became most of my working life instead of being uh, a digression and a diversion from my original thought which was I'm going to be a proper journalist Mm -hmm. music journalists are proper journalists but you know one of those all-round news reporters and all that stuff and there we are. That's how I ended up. That's how I ended up interviewing Gentle Giant for Sounds as well, to bring it back to the subject of the day.
0: Well, Sounds Magazine started kind of as an offshoot of, of Melody Maker. And were you did you know Jack Hutton and Peter Wilkinson?
1: I knew Jack Hutton. I can't remember who Peter Wilkinson was. Was he a co-founder with Jack?
0: And, and um, they wanted to look into different kinds of music than Melody Maker was doing. Yeah. But so how did you arrive at a finished article? What was the process? Did it go from idea, um, seeing a gig, hearing an, mm-hmm. hearing an album, and then uh, submitting it? It wasn't like regular journalism where, say, an editor would say, oh, now go out and, and do this uh, well, so much.
1: No, no, it was was quite professional in that sense, Uh, and uh, it did arise. But, of course, you're talking about a subject where enthusiasm is a huge core of what's going on. So the journalists are almost, to a person, enthusiasts in some way or other, although with different personalities, so they show it in different ways, of course, you know. Uh, But they are that, and so they're all the time suggesting um artists to interview uh, and uh, that's clearly the grist is doing features on artists who you tend to like, although of mm-hmm. course the editors will also sometimes look for uh, a contrary view and uh, uh, put someone on the case who actually doesn't like or has has their doubts about whatever artist you know but mostly it is a strong connection with, the enthusiasm of the writer for the artist, because that connects with the fans. And um, it is, music journalism is very broadly a positive uh, activity because that's what it's based on. It's based on enthusiasm. And uh, so you get a paper like Sounds, a weekly paper like Sounds, which covered uh, over the years, all sorts of rock music Mm -hmm. uh, in the widest sense. And it was always talking to fans who enjoyed that particular kind of music. So there was no contradiction. There was not felt to be any contradiction in the paper between covering uh, prog rock and punk and uh, heavy metal and folk as well. All Mm -hmm. of that, you know, it could be encompassed. And Sounds was quite good at that, feeding separate enthusiasms all within the same paper. And that way you've got spin-off enjoyment. um, And, you know, you don't, obviously you don't presume that your readers only like one kind of music. Uh, They have broad tastes. Uh, They're intelligent people. You're writing to their uh, intelligence. There's no presumption. There is in some forms of journalism, of course, but there's no presumption, I think, in music journalism, that your readers are somehow, um, uh, beneath you in, uh, in their intelligence and their education and so on. You're writing about something you share. And so, uh, Well, there may be differences on superficial things like vocabulary, say, or whatever, um, which may relate to what level of education you've had. The enthusiasm carries on through that and you can still share very well. And I I think that's what, I don't know how it is today because I stopped writing uh, journalism at all a few years ago when I retired, but uh, more or less retired. Uh, I'm writing a music book now, but you know, more or less retired. Uh, and uh, so, that's what the communication is about: is sharing uh, the good stuff. Uh,
0: well, and, you uh, certainly had a way of sharing things. I, I, I was able to um, read several of your articles, and in sounds, um, there was a friend that actually was the one that suggested talking to you. His oh, name yeah. is Peter need him. He's, he's just a gentle giant fan. He's seen, uh, he's seen Giant play a couple of times and I couldn't name the where he saw him. but he said, oh, you you it would be fascinating if you could talk to Phil Sutcliffe. Ah. And I, I kind of I kind of said, well, yeah, I'm sure I don't think he'd probably respond and that's when I sent you the email. But uh-huh. he said he said, um, remembering you really championing championing the band, yeah. And I don't think people nowadays would would realize how important um, in a band's career uh, a, a, a periodical or magazine like Sounds or Melody mm-hmm. Maker could make in their career, uh, either mm-hmm. from if they were silent about an artist or if they um, gave it a really good or bad review, it, it might make or break the band. And um, several times in reading, um, we in the um it's a box set that derek shulman uh put out it's called unburied treasure mm-hmm. and they compiled several sounds articles including the one that you did where you actually sat in at Advision with the band
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: and watched the actual recording and there are gentle giant fans that would give their left arm <laughs> <laughs> to have had that experience but uh-huh. um So we would love to know, well, first of all, let's back up and say, when did you stumble upon Gentle Giant? They weren't, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, people had to almost stumble upon them, I guess, back then, because they they weren't getting the the big write-ups. But how did you stumble upon them and, and, uh, you know, become interested in them?
1: Well, I'm not sure why, but I was sent to... Uh, see a gig of theirs, which I believe was at the Victoria Palace. I may be wrong, but I think that's what the uh, theatre was called. Quite a big theatre in London. Um, fairly modern, I think, is my recollection of it. Just to review a gig, you know, just that. Uh, very simple. And why I was sent, I can't remember. I think it was more uh, sounds people saying. Oh, you might like these people. Go along. And I will have um, listened to the record in advance of a gig because uh, one always did, you know. Uh, but I don't think that I'd heard much of them, if anything, um, before I was commissioned to do that review. And I actually absolutely loved that gig. That was another of my all-time greatest gigs. And I would still say that, you know, like the Rolling Stone one, Stones one was... Well, the Gentle Giant one was too. Uh, Just one of those few notable gigs over the years. And it was just, uh, yeah, just fascinating and electrifying, you know. It just grabbed you, Uh, grabbed me, I should say. These things are all personal taste. And uh, so I became a fan um, there and then. And uh, wrote about their albums uh, thereafter. I didn't get much chance to interview them after that because I suppose essentially they didn't, didn't really take off commercially and particularly in UK. They did better commercially in the States, but they, they were never massively popular in the UK. And so uh, I never got commissioned to do another feature, as I recall, about them. It was just reviewing albums, uh, which I did. Uh, I see having looked up the cuttings uh, regularly. <laughs> Over the next five years, but uh, you know, it was it was just a, a short-lived thing. Was I got really caught up in them around the time of Freehand, and then, of course, uh, Interview, <laughs> <laughs> evidently, um, and uh, really loved what they did. And well, I just last uh, day, of course, to uh, refresh my memory because it was memory, it really was, you know, and uh, seeing thinking, why did I like these people? Oh, I see, I see, yeah. (laughs) And the effect was, well, it was was fascinating in so many ways. But they did have a high-powered physical rock element to them in their own very special way. But it was, to me, it was very physical music as well. And I guess that's how it would connect up with the kick of seeing the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. reaching out to gentle giant well you know they're not obvious comparisons but they do connect uh, with the the physical power of rock and roll is in there in uh, in the
0: gentle giant too well the the gentle giant didn't have a ton of people in their corner so to speak and um I, i i think people gravitated towards some of the bigger name bands but uh Again, back to your, your experience there at AdVision. So, I mean, did you find the guys, I've always heard from everyone that they are down to earth, that they're um, gracious and, Mm. you know, they're, they're, (laughs) they are who they are, but um, Mm. I mean, uh, you had a good experience with them there and I mean, you enjoyed it I guess and but could you tell me a little bit about that
1: well um, I have a terrible memory so but what I do remember of it was um, I say it was a series I mean reread the article you know I hadn't remembered that it was a series of different occasions mm-hmm. uh, so it was a lot of work went into that and uh, we must have agreed that with the editors of uh, uh, sounds as well you know that It's just going to take some time um, going in on three different days at different stages of the album through the month. Uh, I've never done that with anybody uh, before or since. And uh, it was uh, clearly a fascinating thing. I mean, I think I expressed it fine in the article. The article's fine. Uh, Mm -hmm. Pretty decent stuff, you know, about that thing of building the album and the the strange business that uh, I observed, which is, Uh, which I don't think was weird at the time. Um, It was the, uh, the, the, what would you say, not necessarily just prog bands, but how bands responded to the state of um, recording technology at the time. And so they did this thing of playing, I didn't see this, but they played the whole album to themselves initially, apart from one or two tracks that might not have been written initially. Uh, And so you played the whole thing all the bits and pieces everything they could play live they would say right okay well that's the song and then you throw that away almost I dare say they kept the tape literally speaking but you more or less throw that away and start to build it back up which is how come my article is all full of um, uh, images about uh, building uh, bricklayers uh, architects uh, sculptors that kind of thing, um, and uh, in a, one of my more extravagant flights, I compared it to building St Paul's Cathedral. Uh, yeah. I mean, we're allowed to do that in music journalism. We can say quite almost fantastical things. Why not? I have no regrets. Uh, but it, it, I know it felt like that when being in the midst of that on a series of meetings, three meetings of some hours each, just watching them, it takes... you. Break something down to its elements, and then you put them together. You stick a bit of cement in or uh, mortar or whatever to uh, bind the stones together. And the stones might be the drumbeat, and then add a base, you know. And then you start to shape the upper uh, parts of whatever edifice you're putting together, and come mm-hmm. to some fancy bits, which would be gargoyles or something sticking out of the uh, ancient building. Uh, I suppose i was thinking ancient in a way because some of their musical references are clearly from way back what i think of as medieval but i'm sure isn't medieval it's like well a bit of uh, king henry the Eighth's court or something like that you know some of the uh, violin and harpsichord sounds and all those things that they're, they're clearly old english as the reference of them in amongst all the rock and often in the same track as the rock uh, so that was the feeling, you know, like piecing it together, piecing it together. And in terms of uh, them as people, to me as rock journalist, they were wholly welcoming. You might say, well, not surprising. You were one of their few friends in the British music press. Absolutely,
0: yeah. So well, uh, I don't. Sorry, I don't know if you are aware that there are several um, existing recordings that are that are gathered together um, on the Unburied Treasure. Uh, box set and and also in uh, some of their albums called scraping the barrel and under construction where i believe that that some of the first and second takes are are available to listen to Uh and you can compare them to the original um, i'm not sure on interview but on several of their albums i think on the interview but uh well that I, I can't imagine what an experience that must have been to see the inner workings of, of yes. what happens, putting that together and the exhaustion and the frustration yes. and yes. just, just getting, that had to be just priceless.
1: Yes, absolutely. It was, uh, as I say, a, a unique experience for me. I don't mean in terms of seeing just gentle giant, but of seeing a band doing that. And clearly they, they were hoping that uh, um, that album, following up Freehand, which had been, I think, their biggest commercial success, generally speaking, um, top 50 in the USA and so on, um, that they were hoping they'd have a big commercial breakthrough anytime now, you know, and maybe with Interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they wanted to get everything out that they could, and so... Uh, happily, Sounds published quite a big feature on them because Sounds, at that moment, thought, "Well, this might work." Um, mm-hmm. Although other things were happening in music at that very moment, which uh, were about to deflect attention from Gentle Giant and all bands of their ilk, nonetheless, uh, it was uh, it was a possibility at that moment. It wasn't stupid to think, "Oh, maybe we can get our breakthrough." Now, maybe this is the time we've done our apprenticeship. They really had, you know, and uh, six or seven albums, whatever, uh, like bands did back then. And uh, you could still have a career lift off from that position uh, to considerable commercial success, which, of course, they wanted. They'd seen what had happened to Yes uh, or, say, Jethro Tull, who are two bands, I think, have certain musical connections with them. And uh, they wanted a bit of that. Why the hell wouldn't they? Of course they did. But they were, as you say, they were very amiable people for me to deal with. I know it was in their best interest to be nice to me. And sure, that's all right. That's the game. We we all know that. But also there's, there's genuine and there isn't, you know. I think they were just genuine. They had no problem with doing this difficult thing of having me knocking around hour after hour on different days. Wow. And them carrying on working you know and they did and i observed their work and i wrote about their work and uh, that was uh, i guess that was of interest to sounds readers even sounds readers possibly who weren't uh, big gentle giant fans
0: well it it'll be immortalized for all time amongst the fans all right we're back so so the i'll just cut to the chase here i mean your your writing uh was so essential um, to the life of the band, because, like I said, so many um, music period periodicals and so on, they just kind of dismissed the whole lot of, yes, and Jethro Tull and Gentle Giant, out of hand, and and labeled them as pretentious and. Oh yeah. They, they just they, they just didn't give them the time of day, yeah. and your your writing, I loved it. I mean, the articles I've read, I loved your style. And I thought how hard that would be to actually come up with how to write about music. It'd be like <laughs> writing about a writing about a casserole that you had at a potluck. It's it's hard to describe the music itself, yeah. but you were able to really, um, you know, bring that excitement that you had about the music mm-hmm. in your writing, which I really loved.
1: Well, yeah, the, that's what you try to do. That's for sure. That's the objective, one way or another. Whatever your style is, that's what you're trying to do.
0: Well, the, what I wanted to ask you was the interview, the the fake interview you did with mm. Derek, Derek and the band. I didn't realize that was kind of a spontaneous thing. It you, it was just kind of sprung on you. Is that how that went?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. They just said, uh, uh, I think they must have told me at, at some point. You know, uh, we're thinking of calling the album interview anyway. We thought this might be a way of interleaving the uh, tracks. Uh, so shall we do that? And, of course, uh, the idea of appearing on a record appealed to me, as it would, I think, most people. And so I was very happy to do it. And it was a strange thing to do, of course, because it was a fake interview. But the little snippets that did get on the record, I thought, oh, well, that actually sounded all right, although I didn't feel good about it while I was doing it. I see I, I wrote that I had a warm glow at the end of it. Well, I'm glad I did, but I, know I also thought, oh, God, I must have been really awkward, really gauche when I was doing that uh, because I was consciously performing being a journalist as opposed to actually being a journalist, you know. They're two different things. Uh, however, they managed to extract some useful bits. Uh, <laughs> where shall we begin? And so on. and uh, And so... I think it served its purpose. Although I know at one point, um, which I mentioned in the article, they were—they said to me, "Oh, well, I think maybe we won't put it in after all." And I thought, "Wow, that's a shame. <laughs> I'd like to be on your record." You know, of course you would, uh, but then they changed their mind again and put it on. So there we go. Very pleasing, and there it still is. You know, and it's like, "Wow, well, that's nice. It's no big yeah. deal, but it's very nice that it's uh, it's out there still."
0: Did you get to hear the uh, proclamation fan video that Noah put together? Uh, I was back in June of two thousand and, and uh, twenty, and yeah. um, okay, well, he had Noah had always been bugging his father. Let's get the band together. Why couldn't you reunite? And Derek was like, "No, it, it can't happen. It would it would just be a parody of what we were." Yeah, and he kept after him, and when the pandemic hit. Um, everybody was secluded. Um, I remember my, my, uh, I have two seven-year-olds and a six-year-old and they were having to have their schooling over virtual meetings, zoom or Mm -hmm. Skype or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, and during that time, of course, Noah was, um, he had seen all these musicians doing covers of gentle giant songs and he had an idea. Why not try to get the, you know, the remaining band members, to together virtually and do a song and that what they did was they weaved in many of these uh, cover uh, musicians a couple were friends of mine and Um, they said submit your cover version and then of course ray who when he was doing the interview album he he remarked how much he hated doing sound and it's ironic that now that's what he does he works um, he's he's done um, sound and and uh, mixing and so on for the Sugar Cubes and a lot of other bands. Yeah. So yeah. so Ray was given the task of compiling all these different artists and they're they're playing along with you know Derek and Ray and and Phil and John and uh, Malcolm and they they all were were playing the song Proclamation John. and they um. It, they said they announced that it was going to be released, and we all couldn't wait for it to come out. And when we saw it, I mean, uh Jack O'Jaksic and and other, uh, you know, admirers of theirs were, were on were on the were on the video also. Wow! And it made it made Prague magazine's uh, event of the year. And mm-hmm. you'll have to you'll have to look that up on YouTube. We, I will.
1: It sounds a very nice thing to do. I'm very glad to hear about it.
0: And there's been a resurgence in interest in General Giant, and I think that was. Um, if you're not aware, there are me and some fans that are doing a. Um, it's it's kind of a fan fantasy project, trying to get a documentary made about them,
2: mm.
0: and that was one of the reasons um, for the podcast that I'm doing. And I, when we're when we're done recording uh, later on, as I get it edited and published, I will send you a link so you can hear. Lovely, but. Yeah. But I I just, I think all the fans would want to express to you that you are a part of Gentle Giant history and you are held in pretty high regard because you did, um, you did write about Gentle Giant and uh, I don't know if their career would have been the same without you. So we're all grateful and I am grateful to you (laughs) for taking the time and the patience to deal with all the technology glitches along the way. I was a bit. I was a bit nervous because this is my third interview and you've, you've entered that interview thousands, but I oh, can't really? tell you. i have
1: done three interviews. Good heavens. <laughs> What's your job?
0: I drive a truck. I drive a tanker truck and I, uh, haul a uh, liquid sugar and, and, uh, so that's what I do for a living. Wow. But, uh, well, but uh,
1: how nice! To, I mean, I'm, I'm not presuming that that's not enjoyable. If you, as long as you like driving, I guess that's a fine job. But uh, oh, yeah. it's nice to have uh, these other things as a as a creative sideline as well. I'm sure.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate your taking the time, and uh, I just this has been a real a real treat. I'll always remember this, and uh, what an honor. And I'll, I'll send you an email and and hopefully we'll keep in contact but uh anytime y- yes well thank you again for all the fans and um it it was uh it was just an honor to talk to you
1: that's uh well it was a great pleasure for me that's for sure remembering old times you know what us old geezers are like
0: <laughs> we like well, all that <laughs> well with that i'll let you go and and uh, i hope all you best, and your family
1: well all the best to you and your family and also to yeah. all those gentle giant fans it's uh it's uh, they're all lovely memories and the music is still there still lives doesn't it so that's the fine thing sure
0: does yeah well thank you so much and you you be safe and and have a good year okay
1: all the best all kirk right. bye-bye thank you bye-bye Bye.
0: and there you have it folks episode six with phil sutcliffe I'd like to thank Phil Sutcliffe for taking the time to talk with me. I really enjoyed our conversation and it really meant the world to me. Thank you to Peter Needham, who suggested talking to Phil. And in my mind, you made Gentle Giant Fan of the Month. (laughs) I'd like to say also my thanks to my good friends, my confidants, my consultants, uh, Kevin Cortwright, Jacob Feldman, and Edmund Mosse. You can find Phil Sutcliffe's writings uh, in in Sounds Magazine, Q, Mojo, Blender, and other periodicals of the time at rocksbackpages.com. Phil has edited and contributed to books on Queen, The Police, Genesis, ACDC, and also his father's book called Nobody of Any Importance, A Foot Soldier's Memoir of World War I. Well, that's about all I have for you. This has been episode six, and I want to take you out with a song by Eccentric Orbit. Bill and Madeline Nolan, that's their band, along with Rick Landwehr, Tom Benson, and the late Mark Sella. You might know Bill from his work on Giant Tracks and Giant for Life. Their songs, In a Glass House and Just the Same. So here is Eccentric Orbit with Marilyn Monrobot.